Chapter 14 Leela It was winter of 1943, and as November came to a close, snow was falling heavily. The famine was worse and more widespread than ever. They could only wait for the promised American aid that had not arrived. Perhaps it had been stolen en route to the exiles. Maria, as usual, was full of hope. The worst years are behind us. Cheer up, Sophia. This aid represents the goodwill of the American people, and according to international law, nobody is supposed to touch it. But what was she supposed to say, as all sources of food were completely depleted? The suitcases were empty, and the trips to Vashkiria would not help, as they had nothing left with which to barter. All that remained was hope. By now, the whole family was totally supported by Leela. Twice a week, whenever she saved up a few potatoes and bread, she rode on horseback. The route was treacherous and often fell away unexpectedly. Snow concealed dangerous pits, exposed roots and shrapnel-like rocks. By the end of the night, after a round trip of 50 kilometers, both rider and horse were totally exhausted. In January of 1944, three young Ukrainian students of German philology arrived to work with Lila at the buffet of the canteen. They were part of a group of Ukrainian students who had been exiled for fraternizing with Germans. They talked openly about planning to escape and asked Leela for assistance. In return for two loaves of bread, they offered to give up their daily bread for a month. This was possible as bread was delivered every ten days and had to be stored at the Uchastek. Leela, please help us. We will never forget it, please. Everything would tally and there would be no sign of a crime as the bread was just being given in advance. Leela agreed as she wanted to help these three young girls. The girls handed over their ration tokens, picked up the bread and set off. They promised that if caught, they would not disclose the source of their provisions. They had agreed to say that they stole it from the storage facility, which was not always supervised. After a few days had passed, the manager of the Lezozagatovka raised a search party, and when no frozen bodies were found, he had to report the missing girls to NKVD. All travellers were subjected to a document check at railway stations in the vicinity. The poor girls did not make it far, as they were caught in Revda. Lila, fortunately, was not around for the interrogations. After a few days, she set off back to the camp, convinced that the Ukrainian escapees had succeeded. The frost was more severe than ever, with temperatures as low as minus 35 degrees centigrade. As usual, she placed a few kilograms of potatoes under her blouse. In the days just prior to her departure, she had been running a high temperature. All her bones were aching and she could only breathe with difficulty. She struggled to mount Blackie and the friendly animal, seeming to sense her weakness, trod particularly delicately as not to unseat the weakened rider. When they reached destination, she dismounted the horse with huge effort and then everything went black and she fell to the ground. She attempted to crawl but didn't have the strength. That night Maria was unable to sleep. She sensed as if something bad was about to happen and kept going out in front of the barrack looking in the direction where Lila usually came from. She picked up the unconscious Lila in her arms and dragged her towards the barrack steps. Maria and Zephyr put Lila on the bed, removed her clothes and wrapped her body with red poppy perfume as they had run out of methylated spirit. Danusha gently wet her lips with hot water. Lila drifted in and out of consciousness. Her breathing was fast and shallow, and she moaned as if in pain. She kept repeating just two words, Horace and manager. Maria knew straight away that Lila was seriously ill and most likely had pneumonia. 
Sophia went to get Paniatek, who came immediately, bringing with him some spirit. The main problem is the horse. It needs to be returned to the Uchastik as soon as possible, as the manager's head is on the line. It was three o'clock in the morning as Jacek departed for the Uchastik. Lila was taken to the hospital together with Maria. It would be difficult to describe the family's despair as they anxiously awaited Maria's return and news of Lila. Maria returned early in the morning. She did not cry and instead lit two candles and placed a picture of the Holy Mary in the middle. She recited the litany to her out loud. A bright day arrived and with it additional hope. The empty jewelry box stood on the table and Pani Zofaya cooked some potato soup. Maria, can you please accept a gift from me? You're always offering me something, Zofaya. I can see your jewelry box is empty. Please take my wedding ring. It's quite valuable. A wedding ring is sacred. It is your only memory of your great love, Captain Zavui. A weak smile lit Maria's face. I still have something. Look. She pointed at her ears and looked at the pair of golden earrings. This was a present from my father, Jakub. I got them on the 20th or 21st birthday. Gold half-moons with intricate golden lace laid on the table. The time to part with them had arrived, and just like the other jewels bid farewell to their owner of twenty years, now they seemed worthless as if they were golden trash. Yunya wondered why people collected them, perhaps for times like this, when they could be bartered for a glass of milk or a slice of bread. Maria moved mechanically, her mask of indifference hiding improbable pain. She picked up the earrings, wrapped them in a soft piece of cloth torn out from the bottom of the empty jewellery box and left. On arrival at the cold hospital, she found a female doctor who was more than ready to accept the golden gift. That way Maria, again, was able to achieve what she desired and to be able to help to look after Lida. She worked without a break, messaging her daughter, moving her from side to side and lighting cups on her back. She did not leave her alone, even for a minute and continually cleaned and aired the room. In the fourth week of Lila's illness, the manager of the Uchasti came to see her. He was smiling broadly. Well, finally you escaped death. But I'm not here just to talk about it. The other workers have been asking about you and are sending the greetings. They are very fond of you. I brought you some bread and a jar of honey from the family who live on the Black Sea. Thank you very much. I do not know how I'd be able to repay you for all this. I was worried about the Blackie. So grateful to you and to Paniacek that he made it back on time. I would have never forgiven myself if something bad would have happened to you. Thank you. I must tell you, however, that the three Ukrainian girls were caught by NKVD in Rebda. Oh God, I was hoping that they had succeeded. You should have rest assured that they never said anything about you. They are really great girls. Somebody losing some planks from the storage facility, so it looked like had they broken in to steal the bread. That satisfied the commission investigating the escape, as they believed they had found proof. He smiled mysteriously, and Lila understood who had pulled the planks from the storage wall. Maria listened on nervously, hardly believing what her 17-year-old daughter was responsible for. On a different matter, said the manager, you will work in a softwares canteen nearer to your home when you return to work. I arrange it with the new commandant. After six weeks of hospital, Lila returned to the barrack. As spring was melting what remained of that severe winter of 1944, the exiles were now inundated with news about cruelty of Germans. 
they were told almost impossible to comprehend stories about mass murders of the Jewish populations, Poles, Gypsies and Communists. Nunez's family started to fear for Maria's brother-in-law, Mikoai. His fate was to have an extraordinary twist. After the Bolsheviks took over Polish territory, Maria's brother-in-law, Mikoai, hardly spent any time in Savin with his family. Instead, he worked in Vilnius, Minsk, and often travelled to Moscow. He was known as the trusted one. Nobody could have predicted, however, that by the beginning of 1941, he would be hunted by the friend with whom he once shared a glass of champagne. His friend, Stalin, had placed him on the most wanted list. Mikoai had heard of the other pre-war communists being locked up and believed that they deserved to be punished if they had given up on their ideology. But he thought of himself as untarnished and trustworthy, always faithful to Lenin's principles. He talked openly about these principles and was truly a well-meaning and noble man, an idealist who wanted social justice. Many poor and deprived families looked to him for support and often received it. Blinded by his deep belief in the validity of his ideology, would have been caught and imprisoned if it were not for a friend who arranged to meet Mikoai in a cafe to warn him. Mikoai, you have the list. Do not return to Savin. Hide in a friend's house and then make a run for the forest. Do not ask any more questions, as I may have been followed. If they know, I warned you, I will get a bullet to my head. This was all a pipe dream. We have been fed lies, all lies. You really have to run, and I will surely have to follow. I'm not on Stalin's list yet, but soon will be for sure. Mikoa, after switching routes several times, finally arrived at Smorgonia, where his mother's family lived. He stayed there only briefly and arranged with a cousin a suitable place to meet with his wife, Olenka. They were the only two people who knew Mikoai's whereabouts. Whenever Lenka was asked by her family or questioned by NKVD, she gave a stock reply. Please leave me in peace. I'm the one who wants to know where my husband is. Did he have an accident? Please tell me the truth. I have not seen him since the last time he was called to Moscow, so something must have happened to him. After a while, Olenka's parents understood that the son-in-law was in a great danger. The house in Savin was now being permanently guarded by two Soviet soldiers. It was thought that he must have committed some crime. The townsfolk whispered fearfully, Pan Jakub, the Soviet rulers are looking for Mikoai. Did something happen? He had been the trusted one who had served them so faithfully. Bloody red devils. Pan Rovkas echoed the same sentiment. Pan Milkat, we really want to help Olenka. When the Germans arrived, having declared war on Russia, soldiers continued to patrol Olenka's house. They behaved just like the Soviet soldiers, but wore a different uniform and shot without a warning. It was thought that Mikoai, as a well-known pre-war communist, was running the underground movement of local partisans. In actual fact, the Soviet guerrilla troops were an equal threat to the local population, transforming what had been a relatively calm neighborhood and making their lives a daily nightmare. These guerrillas often behave like animals, forcing entry into houses at night and throwing the owners out. If they met resistance, they either shot the owners or left them naked in the snow. These partisans pillaged the houses, stealing everything inside, just like the bandits that used to rob Litvinovka. The German Gestapo was mistaken regarding Mikoai. He was not in charge of any guerrilla fighters and had finally woken up to the faults of communist ideology. He understood the mistakes in his life and all he wanted to do was to make amends. He dreamt of meeting Maria again, kissing her hand and saying, 
They are criminals. You are always right. For a year he hid in the swamplands that were barely penetrable even for the wild animals. Only Olenka and his cousin had any idea of his whereabouts. Once a month one of them would carefully take a circuitous route to visit him. Mikwai dug a long tunnel-like hideaway which was perfectly camouflaged and he survived a winter there equipped only with a warm duvet, some food books and carbide lime. His only happiness was provided by the rare meetings with Olenka. But the time to stop seeing Olenka came sooner than he hoped. Mikoy knew it was only a matter of time before German trucker dogs discovered his hiding place and that it was the time to move on or otherwise put the lives of the whole family at risk. On her last visit, Mikoy spoke firmly. Olenka, please do not visit me any more. I will manage. I have some food and warm clothes. In the springtime, I will try to cross to the town where some friends will find shelter in a monastery for me. I won't tell you where... For your own safety, and nor I can put my friends' lives at risk. I will somehow get a message through to you after I have arrived. I may even leave the country, but you do not need to know. We will meet again in our free homeland. Remember, they may interrogate you, and the Germans use the same cruel method as the Bolsheviks, the cruelest in the world. I will leave my hiding place soon, so please do not let anybody come here again. Mikoa, do not worry about us. The grandparents are helping us as much as they can, but life is very hard for them too. Recently bandits robbed the stables and took most of the cattle. Also they are missing Maria so much that they can hardly sleep. Remember, Olenka, if Maria returns with her children, I want her to know the truth, all of it. You know some of it, but she doesn't. One evening a week prior to the removal of the Polish exiles to Siberia, I attended a conference where we were addressed by a Soviet colonel. Afterwards, everybody was allowed to leave, except those that had family members on the cursed list. Only two of us remained, and we were handed tickets and forced to take the first train to Moscow the following morning. When we returned, it was all over. Even if you were not allowed to know what had happened to me, do not blame yourself for not warning Maria. Maria will understand and forgive you. It's a pity Antony will never hear the truth. They found it difficult to part. She kept leaving and then coming back. Ahead of her was a tough 15 kilometers trek back through the muddy swamp. She ran back to him for a few last kisses, laughing unnaturally. She threw her arms around his neck, asking him to cuddle her, not to forget her, and repeating that she loved him so much. She started to cry, and that unsettled him. Olenka, please stop. Before the year is out, the war will end, and will return with an armful of flowers. You will greet me on the steps of the veranda, and in the autumn we will have the biggest ever honey harvest at Savin. Maria will arrive in her carriage, with Nunya and Danusha, who will be young ladies by then. Olenka, please. They parted. It was to be their last meeting. In 1943, Olenka and Mikoy's cousin went back to pick up the lingo berries. The hiding spot was overgrown with grass and moss, and only with difficulty were they able to find entrance to the lair. The front was coming closer, and Olenka fulfilled her promise to Mikoy and moved in with her parents. In the web of uncertainty, she wanted to be close to her family. Her oldest brother Mikoy and young brother Alexander did the same. In all, there were 14 people living at Marta's and Jakub's golden house. Soon, serious battles between Germans and Soviets raged in the vicinity. The little house right on the top of the hill was very easily visible, and in 1944, during a warm August night, 
tragedy struck Jakub's golden house. As a result of horrendous mistake, Soviet warplanes unleashed hell on earth. The sound of bombardment awoke all the sleeping inhabitants. For some reason the house became the target of Soviet pilots. Deep darkness was illuminated with thousands of lights. Everything was on fire, as if God has torched the whole world. The screams of children mixed with the squeak of pigs, the roar of cows, the piercing neighing of the horses, and the stinging sound of missiles. Some of the inhabitants just stood dumbfounded. Others tried to escape. Olenka took hold of her eight-year-old daughter, Irenka, and had just managed to shout, Get out! But as they pushed on the door to escape, it was struck by a bomb. That part of the house collapsed, and mother and daughter were crushed to death under the rubble. Jakub tried to save them, pulling away the wooden beams, but to no avail. The hot tongues of flames reached out to his dead granddaughter. The screams, moans and shouts for help were lost in the heat as the inhabitants crawled out of the inferno. Some managed to reach the neighbouring fields and hide between the rows of potato plants. Others pressed their faces to the ground but didn't move as they had no strength left to crawl towards the fields and hide. This went on for what seemed like eternity before the drone of the aeroplanes slowly petered away and silence descended. The wounded lay in the courtyard, the howling of dogs and roaring of dying cattle hung in the air, the burning buildings creaked and beams collapsed. The inhabitants of Litvinki observed from a distance the red glow over the dark forest. They walked out in front of their farms and knelt thanking God for his mercy as the hell of this inferno had spared them and the old Orthodox village. With his burnt beard, shredded shirt and madness in his eyes, Jakub desperately searched for survivors. The seriously wounded he placed on the ground in the courtyard, the less injured crawled or stumbled unaided. When the villagers arrived, what they saw was horrifying. Burnt cattle, the building still smouldering, and an old man, his hands covered in blood, shuffling around attending to wounds and trying to stem the flow of blood. Of the fourteen inhabitants, only Jakub was unscarred by the bombs, and it was only because of him that the wounded survived. He managed to put Olenka's body from the rubble, her daughter Renka totally burned by her side. Close by, in the vegetable field, his youngest son, Alexandra, laid with his leg totally smashed. His brother, Mikoi, sat with his head wrapped in blood oozing from his right eye socket, where his eye had once been. The bombardment did not spare Mikowai's daughter Lida, whose left arm was shattered and she lost part of her thigh. Jakobs found her unconscious in the ditch. He returned to the burning house and collected some bedding, which had been spared by the bombardment, to dress her wounds. When he found his beloved wife Marta, she had suffered shrapnel woods to her head and lost her hearing and temporary her sight. She had no idea where she was and what had happened. Anna, the oldest daughter of Olenka, was seriously wounded too. Dawn arrived. The smell of burning hung over the neighbourhood. Instead of the golden house and farm buildings, there were only ruins and deep bomb craters. Among the wounded laid burn or dead cattle, pigs, horses, sheep and dogs. Friends from the village took the wounded to Kurienitz. Some of them required immediate surgery. The Germans were leaving town and Jakub turned to his neighbour for help. He enjoyed good relationship with occupiers and initially refused until Jakub showed him a bag of money which turned his greedy head. 
the army doctor completed the necessary surgeries. He amputated Alexander's leg and removed the remains of Mikowai's eye and extracted shrapnel from Marta's head. Fortunately, there was no injury to her brain. The German surgeon behaved like a true doctor and was the last to leave, an oasis of calm even when the Soviet army was at his heels. He left only when he had attended all the wounded. Olenka was only 35 years old. When she died, Nunia would always remember the picture of her wrapped in a black shawl, lingering on the steps of the house in Savin. She was bidding farewell to her older sister Maria. Perhaps she felt even then that she may never see her again.